Dave Schoner, how are you? Hey, how are you? I am fantastic. So, you and I are the only people watching right now who know how we know each other. So, I'm going to give a little backstory. You, you, you should, because it's been quite a while. Yes. So, I am uh, a successful lawyer and a failed screenwriter. <laughs> or at least, I'm not done yet. But um, it's good. I wrote my first and only screenplay in 1998. You are a film producer. You, well, we'll, we'll learn all about you, but you, you've produced films. You're the head of the New Jersey Film Commission. And you were helping me try to put it together, try to promote it. And that was uh, probably in 99 or 2000, right? Yep, that's correct. Yes. Yeah. And you got my uh, former um, brother-in-law, Michael. He uh, interned for your movie you did. He did. Yes, he did. He was a big help. He was, he was. And uh, you and I have stayed in touch over the years. Then we sort of like, we're semi-Facebook buddies. And then that's sort of like, I don't know what happened. I think I changed my account or something. And then we both resurfaced, or I resurfaced, and we're Facebook buddies again. And I know you have a really cool project you're working on. And I thought, why don't you do Guitar Tales? <laughs> that so, sounds great. <laughs> but I, you, did, you did my show when it was a legal show. Right. Yes, that's right. Yes, I, we talked about leg filmmaking legalities. What you know, what you should look for, not look for, all that stuff along that process. Right. And you, how did you just become uh, a member of the New Jersey Film Commission at that point? Well, I had just become yes because I had actually interned uh, at the Film Commission uh, my first semester of my senior year, and then in um, my second semester I went back to school, and that summer uh, I went in for an interview and got hired. Yeah, I remember that, and and that was a, was and is a big deal. And you're still with the film commission, right? It's 37 years later. I am still with the film commission and going strong. And now I'm actually the associate director. Wow, that's fantastic. And that's and, and you know, why do you do this? Because the the first thing that pops in my head, of course, is the Sopranos. But I know from our interview, and I believe we were on Wayne's World Cable Access back then, weren't we? Yes, we were. Yes. It, it was like a, a two-camera fixed shoot, and it was analog. I remember yes. that. And we were live on AM 1300, which was a wonderful station. Um, but I remember we went through that, and you helped sensitize me to how incredible New Jersey is as a film location. And I want to revisit that a little bit, because a lot has happened since then. But talk a, a little happened. bit about that. So, well, the wonderful thing that's happened in the last um, 18 months is uh, Governor Murphy, who I work for. Governor Murphy has passed a film and TV tax incentive. And it's an incentive that incentivizes film companies to come to New Jersey, film in New Jersey, spend money in New Jersey. And that is exactly what is the biggest attraction for film companies in the states and, and foreign locations. It, they only go where there is a tax incentive. And now that we have a tax incentive, we are busting at the seams, uh, and we're pretty much busting at the seams. Obviously, with the age of COVID, things have died down for a period of time, but we're seeing this very strong resurgence right now. That's pretty cool. And I'm thinking like in the back of my head, so we have The Sopranos was filmed mainly here, right? Yeah, so the TV series of Sopranos uh, filmed a bulk of the on-location stuff here. Their studio stuff was done in uh, Silver Cup in New York, but we also have the uh, prequel feature film version of The Sopranos that also filmed here for 10 days. So, uh, so we are connected to The Sopranos. That's great. And then if you go way back, what uh, wasn't Marlon Brando on the waterfront? Wasn't it filmed in Hoboken? Absolutely. The whole film yeah. was uh, filmed in Hoboken, New Jersey. 
Yep, and, and there's a million uh, movies in between uh, that were filmed. I mean, there's something really special about New Jersey, and you know, there's locations, there's great proximity to New York City for actors, producers. Um, I would imagine you probably have a lot of great technical help at your disposal in New Jersey too, right? New Jersey has everything, and uh, I always say the big highlight is we're cheaper. So, and the, the biggest thing is we offer cooperation, unparalleled cooperation. And I just don't say that. Whether you are a student filmmaker, a filmmaker making an educational film, or you're a big budget movie like The Joker, everyone gets the exact same level of cooperation because it's all about staying here, spending money here. And with the small filmmakers, when they become bigger filmmakers, we want them to think of New Jersey first. Oh, that's a great idea. And I, I know that in addition to your position there, you've had a number of projects on your own. I know you mailed one to my house here. It was really cool. <laughs> um, so well, remind me again, the movie that you did so many years ago, what was that? So there's actually two. I don't know if you know about the second one. So the first one I did is a movie called Murder Reincarnated, which is about this police detective who figures out that the woman that he's dating is actually the reincarnated um, person of a young woman that he saw die early on. And then the other one I did was a movie called A Dangerous Place. And so I don't know, I have a feeling it was Murder Reincarnated. A yeah. Dangerous Place was about 2012. Yeah, that right. So that one I don't know. But this, yeah, the first one I remember. And, so you've always stayed active because, you, you know, your, your passions always revolve around filmmaking. You know, whether you're doing it or... You know. Oh, absolutely. I, I always use the term, and it's a big deal for me, is I have to stay creatively sane. And so um, we are all creative individuals, creative human beings. And so for me, a big deal is being able to have that creative outlet. You know, there has to be that place that I can go. And so it's, it's been a lot of fun, and it, it, it's, uh, and it also gives me the outlet. That's great. You know, it's interesting um, on Guitar Tales, and it's funny. Just tell me you play guitar, so that's the reason you're here. Just say it, even if it's not true. But, I do. All right. I'm, I'm, I'm as musically untalented as possible. Sorry. That's so, all right. I love music. I love music. There you all go. right. So you like guitars. I have an idea. I like guitars. I love can, looking at guitars. You can tell us you can see this guitar. That's yes, close enough. All right. It looks nice. It looks nice. It's a nice guitar. It, it, it's a very nice guitar. So um, we had Alex Scooby on, and, and he's not the only one I, I got that reaction from because he's an artist. He's an actor, but actors are artists. And we talked about COVID, and he talked about staying sane exactly the way you did. Um, he talked about, especially during COVID when we're kind of locked, not kind of, we are locked in, right. the need for people with artistic sides to them um, to have an outlet or their, or their brains really get a little kablooey. You know, like, I have a creative side and I'm finding I'm taking incredible pride in things I cook these days. And, and I'll have a, some real successes. I have my epic failures. But it, it, it's a creative outlet. So for you, you're going to work for the Film Commission. You're going to help the creatives put their project together. You're going to scope the site. You're going to help them coordinate everything. But then on your own, I guess you, you have your own projects that keep your own personal creative juices flowing. Exactly. And for me, it's very much about how do you create that story? What is that concept? What is that overall thing that you're trying to do? And in a story-wise, for me, it's also putting things together. I like um, putting people together, putting stories together, and facilitating something as it happens. That's a really big deal for me. So it, It's really cool. So... And I love that you used the word story. So I was at a, um, 
many years ago, a good friend of mine, Carl Bettinger, one of the best trial lawyers in the country, uh, he's, th he's done, um, he actually took acting classes to become a great trial lawyer, really, and he took a lot of psychology. And he talked about how the human brain is wired to receive a story. And if, if, if you say to me, guess what happened yesterday? I'll respond in a certain way. But if you say, let me tell you a story. Suddenly I get receptive and, and my brain is hardwired to process a story. And it's really cool. And, and if you have that ability and that inclination, it, it, it's just so satisfying to put a story together. You know, and, and a big thing when you talk about that is it's so much. And so when you're talking about a story or pitching a story or retelling a story or whatever it may be, watching the other person's eyes, how they react to it, you can yes. see you can see what's going on. You can see that you're connecting and you can see that they're getting it and appreciating it. Yeah. And, and that, that's a really wonderful thing. Um, and, and, and putting a story together is no simple task. And. You know, I think back to my screenplay, I, I think I had an amazing idea, but in my execution, I know that my story wasn't quite there. And, and that's why it didn't get produced. Um, <laughs> and, and everyone thinks they have a screenplay or a book inside of them. But until you put, you know, finger to keyboard, pen to paper, you don't know if you could truly put a story together. Well, I'll tell you, I think the big thing is, and the key thing is, is that everyone has a story, everyone has an idea, and that's good, but it just exists in that little form. And I'm not minimizing that. I'm just saying it exists in that little form. The real deal where it hits the pavement, where, you know, everything hits, is when you actually complete it, do it, write it, make yeah. it happen, whether it's in a written form or whether you even execute it further. Then there's something real to that. There's something tactile. And, and I think... For me, it always has been, it separates you from everyone else. Each right. little phase separates you a little bit differently from everyone else if you can go past that initial, I just have an idea phase. Now, are you a fan, uh, what was it, uh, the Screenwriter's Bible? I forgot the name of the guy who wrote it. Oh, uh, Sid, Sid Fields. Sid, Sid Fields. So he, he's of the view, I've read that book three times, he's of the view it has to be in this formula. You have to have Act 1, Act 2, Act 3. You got to be plus minus 120 pages, Carrier 12 point, show it, don't say it, all this kind of stuff. Is he right? Is he sometimes wrong? Well, you know, I'm a big, um, I'm a big person of structure. And so I'm going to say that he's right. It, you know, it may not be a literal sense because film language does change. And even the, the language of film is constantly changing. Alfred Hitchcock's movies, while they're classics and I love him, are viewed very differently today because the language of film has changed. But there is a certain thing that he really drives home about structure. Certain things yeah. happen at certain point, how you bring something in. And also the human brain and as movie going audiences, we kind of know when something's working and not working. Right, and right. We also, get a, we also get a sense like, okay, this is like a half an hour too long because that's just how we are. We're, we're trained for it. It's our way our brains function. It's what we're used to. Right. And so on your movie, cre let's talk about your movie creating part of yes. Um You're not the writer. You're the producer in those scenarios, right? Yes. Typically what happens is I'll come up with an idea, a concept. Um, you do what's called the mini deck where you lay everything out, what you're looking to do and accomplish. Oh, and I'll try to... 
I never. Heard, I thought I knew all the terms. What is? Tell us about a mini deck. So, so sometimes they call it a mini bible or a mini deck. And so, what it is is it is a layout of. Let's just say a TV series for right now. So when you talk a mini mini bible, mini deck, you're laying out the episodes of the TV series, what's going on. Not scripts, but you're laying out episode one. This is what happens. Episode two. This is what happens. And. When you're presenting it to someone, they can see what your vision is. They can kind of see how the show arcs, how it proceeds, what processes. And so you get all those things involved in there, and that's what I'll more or less do. I will do that very detailedly and then try to find a writer who kind of matches the tonality of what I'm trying to accomplish or try to find someone who brings something a little different to it. So one of the things, and I'm going to dance off for a minute, one of the things is um, this kids' TV uh, series that we shot the pilot for. And I've been working with a writer who is astutely funny, has a great sense of humor, loves comedy, and we're creating a TV show about uh, tweens. And so I kind of sat down with him, talked to him about it, and we went back and forth and developed it and – he wrote the screenplay based on what we had kind of laid out. And so that's what I enjoy getting something together and then bring, and then getting a writer on board to actually execute it. And, and it's interesting because those are, you know, they can be overlapping skill sets. I know with me, they're not, um, mm. you know, I, I have, I think what you have to some extent is the idea, the concept. I know I, I struggled on the execution side uh, of putting it all together. And what you described, is that a different animal than a treatment? Because that's a treatment's the only term I know that's pre-screenplay. Well, you could do a treatment to a TV series and a treatment to a screenplay if you want. Typically, mini-decks or mini-bibles are stuff that's made for TV. And the only reason I reference that is because for me right now, I think opportunities and where things are at are TV. There's so much outlets there's so many outlets out there right now for having what you're doing and also these outlets are very segmented you can go something very specific so that i i typically just do it would do a mini deck but i guess if it was a feature film i would probably type out it as a treatment and then present that to the writer yes and then a mini deck it it sounds like there's a little more detail to it than there is Okay. (laughs) you know you're gonna have your bio in it you're gonna have the other bios in it you have uh Maybe you envision uh, who the cast is, right. you know, maybe not. Um, you have demographics. You're going you're to also have – it's going to be chock full of information that someone can see that they can immediately go to and say, oh, okay, this kind of answers all the questions um, in this little short little uh, compact book. So tell us you – know, it's, it's a good segue you've given us. Talk to us about your pilot and uh, what, what it's about and what you're hoping to do with it. So the pilot is uh, about a teenager. Sorry, not a t- I, well, I call him a teenager. I guess he's a tween. So that's really, it's more of a tween. So imagine you're a tween in middle school, and a lot of tweens, when their parents can't pick them up after work, they actually go to aftercare. So this tween goes to aftercare every, every day with his best friends. He forgets his book one day in one of the classrooms, goes back to the classroom to get the book, When he gets the book, the smart board or smart TV turns on and his future self 40 years into the future is on the smart board. And he starts talking to it and the future self tells the present self that you need to change stuff in the present because your best friends aren't in the future. 
And so that seems like it's a very heavy thing, but it's actually not. It's made for tweens. There's fart jokes, um, comedy, and it's about, it really is about how you alter things in the present and it ricochets everything down the line. Because we get a lot of times where we say stuff, well, I wish I could change that. I wish I could change that. And you don't realize when you change something, it's going to alter everything else down the line. And so it's subtly infused in there, but it's really a comedy. It's made for tweens. It's a show that's serialized, which means every episode, it's a, a, a sitcom that's serialized. So every episode equals up to a conclusion at okay. the end of the season. So it's not something like a standalone sitcom where you get a lot of like Henry Danger, iCarly, where they're freestanding episodes. This right, all right. adds up to a conclusion. That's fantastic. You know, it's funny. I was thinking if I was sitting around with a bunch of venture capitalists, as soon as you talked about the uh, smart board, I'd, I'd say sold. Like that, that, <laughs> and and it, it's funny. I told you right before we hit the record button, I do want to um, try my hand at another screenplay. And it, it's Five Lunches. I've had the title for 18 years. And it's got a little piece of sort of a time jump. And, and yours I like better because, because <laughs> it, it just, it, it leaves open so many possibilities. Right. You know, but it's a great vehicle for the older, we hope wiser self to sort yep. of guide. You know. I would I would agree. It's a it's a really big deal. It's very important. And also, I wanted to create something that when you watch the characters, you become attached to the characters because right. a lot of sitcoms we get it. There's an emotionalness in there, but you're really not attached to the characters. You really don't you know are aren't totally completely passionate about them. So I wanted you to be attached to these comedy characters in a way that's walking that line, that tween line, because obviously yeah. it's made for nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, um, which is but, very specific. But the nice thing, you know, just like um, I will admit, I like SpongeBob. Fine, I like. I love SpongeBob. I think it's great. Me too. Family Guy, I love. And, and I could see with that vehicle, I could see the parents enjoying the screen while, while, the, um, while the tween who's watching it will appreciate the, the recipient of the wisdom, even if the recipient is resistant to the wisdom. Exactly. And, and, and it has that. And it's, and it's just about how kids function and something that they can really follow and get um, attached to. So, so let's let's talk business a little bit. So, so is the pilot taped already? Is it done? Yep, we uh, filmed the pilot uh, approximately two years ago, and we're making the film festival rounds now. You know, we did it more as a web a web based series at the okay. moment. So we're making the um, film festival series rounds as web fest, and we are actually in five. Uh, We've actually, well, we've been in uh, two already. We have three coming up, uh, film festivals. And so it's been very exciting to, uh, to uh, have uh, the recognition come for the, uh, the pilot. There's a lot of people that worked on it, gave their blood, sweat, and tears, and uh, were so supportive. The cast was amazing. The crew was amazing. And, uh, and so I'm happy for them because to have that recognition on that film festival level is uh, it's a justification that all the hard work paid off. That's fantastic. And, and let's talk about um, a home run for Dave Schoner. What, <laughs> like, it, not just if it happens, but how, what does it look like? How would it form if it does happen? In other words, so you let, yeah, tell us. No, no. So the, the perfect form would be Netflix calls me up and tells me that they want to put it into series. And uh, the first season would be eight episodes. I would come on as a showrunner. And, uh, 
and we would start filming it in New Jersey because New Jersey has a very aggressive tax incentive. And uh, we know the business side of this business is you go where there's money. Right. So that so that's the answer. So you're going to the film festivals and now these days virtually, I would think, to the film festivals. It's all virtually, yes. And then um, I would imagine Netflix has access to these or, or they'll have reps who can potentially say, all right, I want to check out the Hoboken Film Festival. I'm making that up, but the Hoboken Film Festival. And, and your hope is that whether it's Netflix, Hulu, I, th I think HBO is still it could, it could be It could be Disney Plus. It right. could be, um, there's so many possible outlets, Nickelodeon, there's a free form. There's so many different possible outlets for it. And that's the wonderful thing why I talk about content and you talk about this TV type of content because there are so many outlets right now. And right. it's not that everyone produces necessarily a serialized content or um, you know, a series, but there's just so many places it can go that are unparalleled to what we had when you were writing uh, years ago. Yeah, I, you know, we had, we had a little bit of cable and three network channels or you exactly. were in movies. Yeah, it's pretty cool. And, and the name of your production company? So I call it, obviously, because you're looking at it, it's the Great Mustachio Filmworks. Yeah. And, uh, you screwed up my softball. You were supposed to, I wanted you to answer it straight face, and I was like, that would be straight face. Oh, How do you come up with that name? <laughs> but no, it's it's, it's, a, a dear friend uh, was busting me one day, so I've had the handlebar for about, I'd say seven years now. And I remember we were working out in the gym one day and we were talking about it and the friend said, you should, this is what you should call it. And originally I was like, mm, I don't know. And then I was like, no, it's actually become part of my identity, who I am. And, yeah. uh, and so, and I'm not good as a straight man. So if you're going to do this comedy thing, let me do yeah. the comedy. You be the straight guy. Uh, I'm not even funny. So I don't know if I could pull it off. That, that's a good example. I have to be comedy and you're the straight guy. Yeah, I'll be the straight man. <laughs> But um, so that's great. So you've got this production company of that. You have the two films under your belt. And then so now that that taping took place two years ago. It's in the can, as they say. Yep. Right. Yep. So um, since then, have there been any other projects where you've had, you know, non virtual type things? Uh, so it's only been the, well, no, not since that. No, right now we, I've worked on that and I have a bunch of other story ideas, which we talked about this already. Um, yeah. I have a bunch of ideas that I want to put to fruition and I'm actually working with two separate writers right now on, uh, executing, uh, executing those ideas. They're not there yet, but right. I'm hopeful by the end of September, maybe, or October that the idea will actually be written down. It'll be something that you can actually work on. So where do you find writers? I would imagine you're incredibly networked these days. Yeah, you know, it's a, it is incredibly networked. Um, I, I'm on LinkedIn a lot. I'm constantly on LinkedIn. Also, I'm on, and I don't mean it in a social sense, because there's Facebook has got pages. You know, there's a lot of social media platforms that you can connect with people. And so yeah. on them, you, you have to be careful because a lot of times the platform is just a um, more of a social platform than a business platform. And the key, I think, no matter where you find your writer, I would give anyone, is you really have to read the bulk of their work and to make sure that it fits what your vision is, especially if you're coming from a producer. What, does, does their tone, their execution of how they write something, does it fit how you envision something? Because it has to be this marriage because you're going to be in it for quite some time. Yeah, and you know, it's funny because you, know, like you, have a, a, you like to follow the Sid Field formula. I mean, mm -hmm. I think that's a fair characterization. Yes, absolutely, yeah. yes. So if you want to look at, you know, John Doe's body of work and you see that John Doe likes to work way outside of the box, 
you know that's yeah. not a good fit for you. Probably not, no, unless the material that was um, going to be working on would be that out of the box, but it probably wouldn't be. No, I'm very, very big on structure and uh, certain things happening on certain pages and really um, – a screenplay shouldn't be over 120 pages. I may right. get, we may get killed for that, but you know, I really, I think it's too much if it is. Right, and I, I think you know, there's always going to be an exception that that reaches reaches either a lot of or some modicum of success. But I, I know when I read Sid Field's book and and a bunch of others, they would take any movie and they would say, "This is how and why it fit the formula." Every movie mm -hmm. you've ever watched and enjoyed fits the Sid Field formula, with you know this small handful of exceptions out there. Yes. Well, there's, you know, I know. I, I'm gonna say I know you'll agree. There's always an exception to every rule. Right. Right. And but it doesn't invalidate the 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 rule. You know. No. Not at all. Totally, but I, totally you know, it's, not, it's no. been two decades since I read those books. But I read, you know, ten. I slowly, carefully read maybe ten screenplay books. But I know that the Sid Field book is the book. You know. It really, it, it really is. And when I talk to young screenwriters or talk to people that are doing some sort of class or taking class or something like that, I always yeah. tell them you should read it. It should be part of when you're advancing and learning. It should be yeah. part of what you uh, what you gather to uh, to make it work. Yeah, I, I know that when I first started getting into this, a buddy of mine who's going through exactly what you did. He's got he's got a sizzle reel that's generating some interest, and mm -hmm. he had sent me many years ago the screenplay for Fargo. Oh, wow. What an amazing read. You could just see the genius in that movie. Yes, which is the whole point, yes. Yeah, and I also remember, now that I think about it, I read Austin Powers. <laughs> wow. Austin Powers screenplay. And I, I still remember to this day, I, I was laughing my ass off, even though I'd already seen the movie by the time I read it. Mm -hmm. The scene where he, there's a car going over a hill... And it inexplicably blows up, but it shouldn't. <laughs> or, or else the person blows up. But it, just the genius of the comedy. But, right. But, you know, I, I know that an important piece of it is that when you get a regular writer trying to approach this medium, uh, there, there's too much what they call exposition. Yes, exactly. And, and screenplays are a very particular type of format and read. And I try to tell people who have never read a screenplay before, you're going to need to process how a screenplay is written because yeah. it's not written like a short story, a novel, a magazine, or anything you've ever yeah. read. It's a very different, uh, very different type of uh, process. Is it still the case that if you're not doing 12-point courier font, you're screwed? Uh, it, nothing's changed, my friend. Really? <laughs> yes, yes. That's so crazy. Yeah. So, uh, it's, it's not so I, I will share this. It, it, it's a funny but bad story. So an old paralegal of mine, um, her uncle is the was the producer of that great movie Traffic. Mm -hmm. He's a very big deal. She got me a read. And I've never admitted this publicly except privately with friends. So I managed to get a read of my screenplay, the one I sent you so many years ago. So he wrote a coverage for it. He personally wrote coverage. That's a big deal to get that kind that of... Is a, that is a big deal, to get that type of attention, to have someone take the time out of their crazy busy day, because it's if, you, if you're really in the business, I mean, I'm, on, I'm in it, but that man is really in the business. So, so, when he reads my screenplay, and I excitedly get the coverage, because there's no email. I get a, you know, I get paper back then, right? Mm -hmm. So, this big time 
not just big time, huge time Hollywood guy, took the time to read my screenplay and my favorite line from coverage, and coverage as you know, but other people might not, it's just, it's like a book report. That's right. Screenplay, and it'll end with either, you know, what is it, pass, um, consider, and what's the other one, go or something? Yeah, I'll where you're going to get a green light or green light, yeah. on what it is, yes. Right. Right, because there was that show Greenlight that was out for a while. So my yes. favorite line in the coverage report was the following. The dialogue is so bad, it often leads to unintended laughter. <laughs> okay. And I was so thankful I had a day job when I read that. <laughs> but it was like getting kicked with a steel-tipped boot in my gut when I heard that. But he was right, you know. And, and, and you know, this business is a tough business, and it's not for the faint of heart. Yeah. So you, you have to be able to take criticism, whether it's right or wrong, because yeah. everyone has an opinion. But uh, it's definitely not for the faint of heart. No, no. There's, you know, there, you put your soul into something, and, and you know, look, I, I was very fortunate. It was my first shot at it. I had no training, and I had a day job. I was a trial lawyer. But right. um, so, when you read stuff from your screenwriters, do you ever find yourself in sort of creative battles with them, where they don't, you know, they're very married to something, whether uh, it's a style or a scene? You know, I, I don't. I would probably not use the word battle, just be, and I understand, the, you know, why you say that. Um, I, I really haven't um, had that opportunity. We've gotten to discussions about stuff and worked stuff like out. Best discussion. Well, well, this is just like it doesn't. It's not how I envision something, or not how I, yeah. I do it. And we'll go back and forth and have a have yeah. a heavy discussion of it. And sometimes um, you, it takes more time uh, to work through what it is that you're trying to convey if the screenwriter is not feeling it or doesn't get it. And right. that's why you'll see uh, a lot of successful screenplays, depending on who's writing it, you'll sometimes see multiple screenwriters on right. it because some, there's a point sometimes where you just have to bring somebody else on to uh, try to carry the vision out. Right, right. Or, yeah, that or sort of get the vision of the screenwriter more in line with, with that which might be commercially palatable. Exactly. And it depends. Once again, if you've done a lot of your research, you'll have a, a good idea of what someone is like, what their general tonality is like, and what they envision. So the young man that I'm working with now, he's fantastic because he really likes that comic. That's his thing. His thing is comedy. His thing right. is, I don't mean slapstick in a tradition, that traditional sense, but he likes that comedy. And so I probably, you know, I've talked to him about a more of a serious screenplays or something. And so, he, and he'll often admit, well, no, this is really not where my, where my strength is. Right. So I was like, okay, I understand that. And then you move on. And, and I think the hardest thing, which is probably not that hard for a screenwriter, is to put the, you know, you, you have the story, which we talked about a little bit before, but then getting the right words to come out of the characters' mouths, you know, to, to really, to, to find the essence of a character's personality and think, how would they express or what words would they use? And of course, in screenplays, you're going to have, he slouched and said, you know, or something like that. So you're, you're going to have at least, and you don't want to tread too deeply into the director's uh, province, right? But yeah. there has to be at least a little bit of that, you know, type cut to, um, you know, Billy's face as he tearfully says, you know, something like that. Yes. But grab those correct words. And, and, and again, I, I, from my one experience at that, I, I know that it, it's really hard. And, and if you don't do it right, it, it comes across as sort of contrived or hokey or formulaic. But to get 
real genuine organic expression of feelings and, and words out of a character's mouth is no easy task. I mean, you and I are doing it right now, but to put it on paper. It's yeah. very, very, very different because you want to capture how uh, the syntax, the, the, the inflection, the way a person talks. And a lot of times we would do something that you typically wouldn't have in a screenplay. Well, hi, David. How are you? Well, I'm very doing very well, David. We're doing well. Good, good. How, you know, you don't necessarily always do that in a screenplay right. because it's like it's, it's boring and it's not interesting. So right. there is definitely a uh, system. I think if you're writing a screenplay, what the, your biggest goal obviously is to satisfy all that stuff, but you're writing a screenplay for it to be read. And that seems like a very uh, ridiculous statement to make, but you want something to literally be the term a page turner. You want to have that screenplay where they are flying through, the reader is flying through your screenplay because that is going to get you to the next stage. Right. I remember I read, for some reason the word 11 or the number 11 stands out for me, that the first 11 pages are those critical pages. If you yes. haven't grabbed someone by those first 11 pages, you're, you're done. There, there's yeah. Pass. Pass. That's right. People that they, that's going to start. They they want to. You have to grab them in that time frame, that very short time frame. And if you grab them, they will stay with the. Uh, they will stay with the screenplay and continue reading. And, and then, if you think, of, I wish I could think of an example right now. Uh, but when you think of the best movies, right, you get that that unbelievable scene where you're drawn in to the story. Right. I shouldn't mm -hmm. put air quotes around because it, it is a story. Um, you know, by minute one, you're right. Fully, fully drawn in, you know. Um, Rocky one, you know, the very first Rocky, you know, what a, what an amazing Hollywood Philly-based story. The way he did that, yeah. Um, but you're you're drawn in right away. The, the you're, you're you're completely drawn in, and that's what you have to do because you have to remember when we're watching it on the screen. You, you want to keep the audience. You want to get them in and have them stay with the show, whether it's a feature film or whether it's a TV series. You want to have them stay with it. And so that's why it's so key in those first 10 pages, really, to make that impact and have it, uh, have it uh, stand up. Right. And it's basically, it's a minute a page. That's what a screenplay yeah, exactly. is. Exactly, yes. You, you get, that's the general guideline, yes. So yes. Um, I want to segue a little bit. And what I love, what I love about our show is that the time flies. I feel like I've been chatting with you for three minutes, <laughs> and we're already probably at a good half hour, which is. Uh, I, yes. yeah. And um, so I know you're working on a wonderful project right now, uh, Cedar Grove Waves, I believe it's called. I yes, sir. Let's talk about that a few minutes because here we are. Our taping right now is August 26th. We'll see how quickly it airs, but um, talk about that project. So Cedar Grove Waves is where um, the students at Cedar Grove High School put uh, 2,977 flags uh, representing everyone that was killed on 9-11 on the front lawn of the high school. In addition to the flags, they stick a name marker in front of each flag that represents each victim and who that person was. Their name is on it. Behind it is the country of origin of that person. So approximately 372 people were foreign nationals. And so if you were a foreign national that was killed on 9-11, your country's flag would be behind your name marker. That's beautiful. And yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty impactful. And it's, um, it came out of, I have a little backstory, but it came out of the knowledge that young people uh, are, were too young to remember it and really don't appreciate what's going on. 
when you were talking to me about Pearl Harbor, I really don't have a full concept of Pearl Harbor and what it meant. So the idea came for me is that let's do something that's a very visual effect that um, you really causes a conversation and makes people stop and stare. Now, to be fair, it was, uh, it was, I would say now it's six years. So I would say about 10 years ago, I was um, in California on a business trip. We were with a car full of people. We were going up to a meeting. We were driving up the Pacific Coast Highway. As we're driving up, we're going up the Pacific Coast Highway. Pepperdine University is off to the right. Been there many times. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And there were flags, these massive flags all over Pepperdine University. Oh, right. And I was like, something's going on there. So we have to uh, stop on the way back. And it was in September. And so on the way back, we, all, we parked at Pepperdine, we got out of the car, and we found out that Pepperdine University, they just put the 2,977 flags on the front lawn of Pepperdine. And, that's and it's a, a beautiful sloping lawn. It, it overlooks the, the Pacific Ocean, it's yeah. green, it's majestic, it's massive. And, so, and the flags they put up are massive flags, full-length flags with metal bars, and they're spread apart so you can literally walking through a sea of flags. And that stayed with me. It just, it would not, it would never go away. And yeah. so like three years later, I was like, I wonder if we could do something like that here in Cedar Grove at Cedar Grove High School. But the challenge is, is that obviously you want to do something that's dignified and respectful. And at the same time, um, being cost conscious and being very responsible financially. Because if you're going to spend a fortune, I'd rather have students have it than, you know, you want to have something that's, that's there. It has to check all those boxes in right, not right. a very typical way, but a responsible way. And so what we do at Cedar Grove High School and in Cedar Grove is we get um, their flags that are 18 inch tall, their wooden flag, and the flag is actually 12 inches long. And so we have this whole process where we put that those flags out. So they're like knee high. And the effect is definitely there. And right. the effect is, yeah, it's impactful. The one thing that happens every year, this is going to be our sixth year. The one thing that happens is obviously they're wooden flags. And they accidentally break. They get old. The elements attack them. Uh, it's all those typical things. So we have to fundraise every year through GoFundMe to get new flags every year. Right. One of the things one of the things I've tried to do every year is how do we switch it up every year? And how do you switch it up to make sure that it stays dignified? Because there's always this possibility that uh you while you'll walk away from the dignity. It has to be something that's, you know, serious and dignified. So the first year we just put flags in the ground. There was nothing no markers. The following year we put markers in the ground next to each person. And so each year we did something that was different. In year four, we actually were very fortunate enough uh, through a um, father in town who actually had friends and coworkers that died in 9-11. We actually appealed to the Port Authority and now have a piece of 9-11 steel actually in a monument on the high school property. I saw it on the YouTube thing you sent me. That's amazing. Really amazing. It's so impactful that it does what it's supposed to do. It's all about causing this conversation. It's about young people that are 19 years old, 17, 18, 16, and they're going to talk about it when they see it. So that is the, it's just worked this year. 
we are going to uh, fundraise to plant two trees on the front lawn of the high school for the two Cedar Grove um, residents that actually died that day. That's so a good idea. It's, it's just little things, keeping it dignified, honoring them, remembering them, and just educating young people. So, so the parallel I'm finding here to sort of pull it all together is that you've got Dave Schoner doing something really nice and you're tapping into your creative side. Yes. Every single year finding a newfangled way to keep it dignified, fresh, and interesting and relevant uh, to the children and the families. So every year you're tapping into your creative side to find just the slightest little different angle uh, to keep it fresh and uh, meaningful to everyone. I think that's great. I, I think that's absolutely correct. And it's something that's always on my mind because you want to, once again, how can we change it up a little bit? And the biggest thing I always tell people is you don't want to do change for the sake of change. Right. Because if something's working, I don't mean getting stale, and that I'm not even implying that here. But if something's working, there's no reason not to stay with it. Right. So it's about how do we change it up a little bit every year to keep it fresh and to keep it um, keep that keep that momentum going where it, people talk about it. I, I love that idea. Uh, Thank you. I, I think we have to get you back another time because I, I could do five hours with you. But, <laughs> uh, well, yeah, I, I love talking. You love talking. Uh, and, yeah, that's a good uh, combination, right? It is. Yes. Yeah. It is. And I, I would I would guesstimate the last time we did a, an interview together was probably nineteen twenty years ago. It, ha it, ha it solidly has to be. I can't. It has to be that long. You know who I just realized? It was John McLaughlin who connected us. Right? Yes, it was. Yes, yes. John's doing well. He's oh, doing good. well. I stay in touch with him occasionally. And, you know, the thing about, um, you know, it's been a long time since we've connected. And I always, I always say this. And I don't, once again, because I, I don't function in the negative. I don't mean this as a negative. Yeah. Life gets in the way. And yeah. so life gets in the way because there's a lot of different things going on. And... Sometimes it's, it's, it's more complicated. Sometimes it's not. But the fact is you make these human connections and you make these personal connections and it, they wind up resurging or coming back just like anything in a relationship. No, it's very cool. It's very cool. And then you reconnect and it feels like it's been 10 minutes and not. Absolutely. Yes, it yeah. does now. Yeah. Like I said, we would talk forever. So this was fabulous. I know for the first and only time of our Zoom shows, we technically call them fireside chats. And the reason we call them that is the first promo I did was in front of my fireplace in my house until I realized I have no Wi-Fi there. So <laughs> I lit a candle behind my desk a few times to pretend it was a Wi-Fi or a fireside show. Now I just call it that and it doesn't mean anything. Thank you so much, Dave Schoner. This is great. You're welcome, my friend. And let's make sure we stay in touch. Mm -hmm.